Hello, and welcome back to another Storyteller Studio podcast here from Vancouver Film School. I'm your host, Colin Giles. I'm the head of animation here at Vancouver Film School, and we're super excited to welcome one of our most esteemed graduates, Aaron Gilman. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Very happy to be here. Aaron is the head of animation at Double Negative and is actually one of our most esteemed graduates out of this program. Thank you very much. Now, having said that, I'm also going to... This is the moment in the show where I get to expand your head. Okay. So excuse me while we get through this. And in the in the interest of saving time, I'm, I've edited some of this out. But Aaron, to prove my point, has been nominated for awards from VES, Hollywood Post Alliance, Annie's. You've done lectures and workshops around the globe just to sort of set the stage. But in terms of your credits, Aaron has been an animator, a supervising animator, animation director on titles from Adventures in Tintin, Godzilla, Iron Man 3, The Hobbit Films, Avengers, The BFG, Pacific Rim Uprising, <gasps> Hellboy, a movie called Avatar, a small independent film, I'm pretty sure that was. And most recently, you were the animation director on Togo for Disney+, Plus, which is uh, uh, a up, small upstart streaming service, <laughs> by the sounds of it. Um, Aaron, by virtue, has a degree in philosophy from UBC. Strange, I, isn't it? Strange, but maybe not so uh, strange when you we talk about what we're going to be talking about Often today. the degree that people take when they have no idea what they want to do in life. Appeasing the parents. I'm going to have a degree <laughs> in, right. in yes. philosophy. I'm making a fortune with this. <laughs> You're turning it into gold. <laughs> so you saw, I want to start here because this is in one of your, your bios. And I, I, we've talked about your career before and we, we're not going to focus solely on that. But I do want to talk about the moment when you saw a bus ad. Yes. For Vancouver Film School. Let's yeah. just talk about that transition from philosophy degree to making cartoons. So one of the important things to, to know about me is that by the time I saw that bus ad, I was 26 years old. I was already married. I got married at 23. Wow. So I met my wife in university and pretty much had no idea what I was going to do with my life. So I'm not sure what she was thinking uh, in hooking up with me. <laughs> But, um, yeah, I was working minimum wage jobs, and so was uh, my wife, and we were living here in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was literally still getting allowance from my mother because I could <laughs> barely pay rent. Uh, I was working at Rogers Video, renting VHS tapes. And, uh, yeah, I saw this ad on a bus, and, and there was another thing that happened that sort of coincided with that. It was sort of um, a, a swirling of, of a few events that kind of coalesced together, which was my uh, estranged sister. Uh, reached out to me from Montreal. Hmm. And I hadn't seen her since I was about five years old. Uh, you know, parental issues, divorces, that sort of thing. We just had no more contact with each other. And she was living in Montreal, and she reached out to me to tell me that uh, I needed to visit with her in Montreal to help our brother, uh, who was having some troubles in life. Hmm. So I went to her work, and I met her there, and she was working for a small visual effects studio. And I walk into the, the work environment, and there's people, you know, modeling dragons and, and, and animating. And it was, it was so clear to me that that was what I was looking for. I was almost shocked, really, right. because my entire childhood and into my early adult life, I knew visual arts were always the thing for me. Mm. So I, you know, experimented a lot with photography. Um, I wanted to be an actor for a really long time. I was always that, you know, uh, kid in the high school play. Um, theater geek. Theater geek, absolutely. Uh, interested in film. That was a passion from a young age. And I had always been around computers. So I had like a Commodore 64 mm. at 11 years old, you know. Right. Um, so... I had been experimenting with different things in visual arts, graphic design, that sort of stuff. And when I met my sister, um, and I, I 
learned more about what it was she was doing, uh, I literally raced back to Vancouver and I took out a bank loan and I enrolled myself at Vancouver Film School. Wow. Um, and probably within about three months, I knew. I was like, this is it. Animation is the thing for me. It combined all of these interests, interests that I was passionate about. It was, right. it was acting, it was cinematography, mm -hmm. it was uh, directing, it was all of that stuff and performance, which is something that, you know, like there's a lot of um, extremely talented artists in animation. I mean, everywhere I work, there are people who can draw and paint and sculpt and all of those things. And right. I'm not good at any of that. Uh, the only thing that I connect with in terms of understanding performance is my own body mm. and my analysis of, of moving content. So, you know, understanding what's happening under the hood in, in an anatomy right. is something that I connect with. And I just I've always felt like I intuitively understood. So the thing for me is like, you know, I may come away from this experience right now with you, Colin, mm -hmm. and I will remember how you're sitting, right. but I will have no memory of the color of your sweater. <laughs> like that, those sorts of details just kind of go right over my head. Right. But things in terms of motion and, and, and posture, imposing attitude, the way in which someone speaks, um, you know, we all do this. We play these games with ourselves where, like, if you're ever working in an open format environment um, and someone is, you know, 10 meters away walking by your desk, you don't even need to look up because you know it's John right. or Sarah because you know the gate, you know the bounce, those sorts of things. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I went into Vancouver Film, film School. I, I did the one-year program, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I, was, uh, I was working uh, pretty much immediately after that mm -hmm. and uh, went to Montreal, in fact, to work for my sister. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. So she took my, my VHS. <laughs> you, had, you had a hookup. I had yeah, a hookup. And, yeah. you know, that, that's a big part of this industry. Sure. Um, I've, uh, I think there's only one job in my entire career that I've ever had that was just a, a cold mm. call, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, there's always a connection. Um, and it's, that's why we talk a lot about networking and sure. how important it is. Yeah. I have but, a similar experience. The only time I ever used a resume was to get the job here at the school. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Everything else has just been, yeah. hey, so-and-so. Absolutely. And for me, like now in my career, I do a lot of hiring. Right. And, and the big thing is the references for me. Yeah. Because, you know, I've worked in on shows or in companies where a single individual at any level of the hierarchy Right. can destroy the entire show. Sure. Um, it's amazing to me how much a single personality can have a viral effect on a team, whether it be for the super positive or the super negative. Right. So for me, you could, you could look great on your reel, you could look great on your resume, but understanding that you work well with others and people respect and trust you mm -hmm. is probably more important than all of that. I'd rather work with an animator that I can develop technically and creatively, but know they have that personality right. foundation that is just always going to be easy to deal with. Yeah. That's the most important thing. A professional reputation is is a huge, maybe probably the majority of something that you need to carry with and, you. And, it, and it's build. not something you can ever get rid of. Right. It, you can't ditch it. Right. Um, Good and the bad. Yeah, and it's amazing, too, because, like, you'll even talk to people who may have worked with this person eight years ago. Mm -hmm. So you imagine that over that eight years, that person has hopefully, you know, changed and developed and learned things. Right. And yet eight years earlier, even like in the present day, that person who worked with them and may have had a negative or a positive effect, right. they still carry they that still with them. still pin that. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Would you say, like going back to your first job then, even though you kind of, you know, had that connection, was there an awareness of... of being a professional, like, was there and were you intimidated? The, the, the first few jobs you had yeah, were so, back in Montreal, animating dinosaurs. Yeah, I yeah, mean, that's there's a good the, question. There's the artistic side of it, but then there's this 
this awareness of being a professional? Yeah, I think so. My first job was uh, working for a company called Meteor Studios, mm -hmm. uh, which was basically a startup in Montreal, part owned uh, in, by owners in LA mm. uh, that was there specifically to compete uh, with you know projects like Walking with Dinosaurs. Right. Um, and so what we were doing was doing enormous amounts of, of animation every week for television. And the people who were hired to kind of run those shows had just come off of Disney's Dinosaur. So my first job, I was already interacting with really talented mm -hmm. animators. So as far as intimidation goes, I was super intimidated. Yeah. And I will never forget, I produced my very first animation in that company, which was a T-Rex walk cycle. <laughs> and I was learning Maya, too, because... Back in the day here at Vancouver Film School, we were in the old soft image, yes. right? Not XSI, but the actual soft soft, which yeah. would like crash on you in the blink of an <laughs> eye with no backup save. And um, I remembered showing that T-Rex walk in my dailies and everybody started to giggle. And I was mortified. Right, right. I went white as a sheet. And what I discovered after was that within the context of the realism that we were looking to do for that project, right. my T-Rex was, <laughs> he was super. He was a, he was he was, a character. Yeah, yeah, he was a character. He was bouncy and he was really into his own walk, you know. And uh, it was embarrassing, but it was also an incredible learning experience right. because obviously I had people that had been animating already for 10, 15, 20 years. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I always thought I was kind of, in the big time when I got that first job, even yeah. though it was really just a small startup company. Right. But it's the big yeah. time in comparison to f obviously school. And then now you're, you're, I, I always find too, like when you're in those first jobs, it's almost really um, like having an awareness of you're, you've made a mistake and you're, you're making mistakes constantly mm -hmm. and, and being kind of uh, okay with that because it's better to kind of trip and fall and learn what not to do. And then you you compare yourself to all the other professionals around you and realize, oh, they've, they've probably made these mistakes too. It's interesting that you say that because one of the things that took me forever to learn was to actually delete everything I had done. Right. So, so I've worked with animators where um, it doesn't matter how extensive and complex the notes are they get that mm -hmm. they need to adapt into their animation. Mm -hmm. They will somehow figure out how to hammer those notes into the work that they've already submitted. And what happens sometimes is you can tell when that is the case because there will be kind of some kinky sort of, you know, weird, um, you know, motion in the performance where you can tell that they've kind of just drilled these notes right. in what they already had. Yeah, yeah. And it took me a while to realize that sometimes I'm happy to get notes that cause me to blow stuff away because I know time and time again when I rebuild it, I'm faster, yep. it's built cleaner, and it's probably going to look better in Absolutely. the end. So, yeah, I mean, that's something that I tell people to always think about, which is if the note is severe enough, don't hold on too tight. Yep. It's okay to let it go. You will get back to where you were, but quicker. You can't force it. You can't put that square peg in a round hole like or lipstick on a pig if we're going to go it, down the it, cliche route. It's like right. you have to... Like the la that layered approach, and by layered, I mean the the layers of mistakes that you make, and then taking that. As long as you're taking that information, and then the next time you go, well, I know. Again, I'm building on those things yep. that came before. And usually, those things force you to look at what the process was that got you to where you were. And right. by looking at that process, you can sometimes answer the question to yourself where you kind of probably should have done it a different way. Right. 
Right. Um, it could be, I mean, the classic one is you started the animation without analyzing reference. Right. Um, but there are n- numerous examples where you could have problem solved before you invested your time right. and avoided those complications. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's process, right? It's, uh, I think that's, that's a big part of being a professional. Yeah, and what I what I like to, to think about sometimes is, um, I'll g- give you a story. Uh, so so after the Meteor experience, yeah. um, I ended up going to a studio called Tippett mm, uh, yeah. in San Francisco, in Berkeley. And... Um, I got hired for uh, the third Matrix film, Matrix Revolutions. Mm -hmm. And my very first shot, I was absolutely convinced that they were going to fire me Mm -hmm. because I literally could not do the work. I was like, everybody's faster. Everybody's better. It's super complicated. The puppets are incredibly slow. Uh, And I was doing a shot with the Sentinels, which are the, the squid robots. Right, yeah. And I remember it was the first and only time in my entire career that I've cried. Uh, I was on the bus going home, and I'm crying. I'm like, they're, they're going to can That's me. It. I can't do this. Um, and uh, what I did between that day of crying on the bus and the next day was I did something that I learned from because of what we're talking about, these mistakes and learning from your mistakes. Yeah. Um, I did something that I, I, I call like mental weightlifting. Mm. Okay. And basically what it was was I... I went through the process in my head of everything that I was going to do the next day after blowing it all away and starting over. Every constraint, every locator that was hooked up to whatever other locator. Like I just I worked the whole thing out in my head and I mapped it in the shower, on the bus, in bed, lying, staring up at the ceiling, just trying to figure the whole thing out Mm -hmm. and going through the mental exercise of actually trying to do it. And then when I went back to work the next day, I executed that, and by the afternoon, I had blocking approval, and I was like, oh, my my God, maybe I'll be okay. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, mental weightlifting is an important thing, which is, you know, sometimes it's not good to just shut off when you leave work. There, right. there's, there's still work mm-hmm. to be done. Sure. Um, you got to live that, with it. You got to live. And it's that, that private dialogue that you have with yourself where you're sort of putting the pieces together yeah. to make the next day even smoother. Absolutely. Yeah. It's funny. Like I, I, I'd say about halfway through my career so far, I really started to miss the, the trench of animating or working with other people or just, just problem solving. I, yeah. I really realized that it was never about drawing. It was never even about animating necessarily because the least favorite part of it was finishing. Yes. I always felt kind of a sense of loss when you're done a project because you're like, oh, that was all of that stuff that I was problem solving. I've just added to my arsenal. Mm-hmm. And, and then you got to kind of pick yourself and go, wait, I can bring all of that to the to the next stage. And shifting from one city to another, you realize I've got a fresh slate. I've got all this new stuff. Yeah. And uh, I, I imagine you would have had that when you went to, to Weta. Uh, yeah. That, that level of confidence having gone through some of that, that big learning curve that you went through. Well, Weta was a step up uh, in terms of what my level was relative <laughs> to the environment that I was levels. joining. Yeah. I mean, when I got to Weta, everybody was senior. Right. There really wasn't a widespread of level. You have to remember that, you know, Weta is a facility that brings in a lot of out-of-country people. Mm. They don't have a big industry there where the students are just coming out. Yeah. So in order to justify those visas, they have to be able to show that they're bringing in people, obviously, with extensive years of experience. Sure. So when I went down there, I went into an environment that had an enormous amount of seniority and people that had been doing it uh, longer in some cases than, than I had. Mm-hmm. I mean, the people that brought me down there were my old friends who were my superiors at Tippett. Right. So they'd been around for a long time. <laughs> and uh, the incredible thing about Weta is, you know, Every company has a standard for blocking animation, yeah. right? Obviously, 
I don't need to necessarily define blocking, but blocking basically being these, this is the, the, the basic blueprint of the performance. And mm -hmm. we're going to show that to the client and make sure we're, we're in the right ballpark here before we move it forward. Blocking at Weta looked like any other company's final animation. Right. Their blocking was so polished that it almost was, uh, it, it became part of the culture. Right. Where, where, you know, if you were the one person blocking super simple, it was obvious that you were the one guy blocking super simple <laughs> because everybody else was blocking like to crazy levels of detail. Right. And the interesting thing about that is the reason they could do it, I felt anyways, was because when they would get client notes back or any internal notes back, mm -hmm. they were so experienced with building animation that they could pivot and adjust in a very agile way to modify that really complex, almost final blocking mm. to incorporate those notes. And that's right. a skill in and of itself, sure. which is, you know, are you, are you baking on fives and then reincorporating new notes within that? Are you right. scrapping stuff? Are you rebuilding constraints? And um, they that was intimidating to go into that environment, let alone to go into an environment where the first thing you're asked to look at are final rendered Natiri close-up shots. <laughs> and you're like, what have I walked into? This is gorgeous. Right. Um, yeah. So, no, it was an intimidating experience, but uh, I learned a lot there. Absolutely. And I loved it there. Well, I, I mean, that's the thing you probably, at the time, you're, you're intimidated, you're excited, you're scared, you're anxious, you're you know, breathless about it all. And looking back on it now, you're probably realizing that's a, that's a huge momentous occasion for your career. One of the things that I, I learned most, I think, from being at WET, and I tell this to anybody that I work with, mm -hmm. uh, where I'm in a position to hand work out, um, never be afraid to ask for what you want to work on. I don't care if right. you're the new person or if you've been there for ages, if you're shy or not, mm -hmm. you should always let people that you're working for know what it is that you're excited to get involved in. Right, um, right. And sometimes people are nervous about that because they're like, you know, well, I, I, I'm new here. Or I don't have as much seniority. Mm -hmm. Who is it for me to ask for this hero shot? Right. And when I got to Weta, um, of course, I knew that Avatar and, and Weta in general was a heavy mocap facility. There was a large motion capture component sure. to their work. Mm -hmm. And this was back in the day where, you know, animators thought mocap was the devil, yeah, right? Exactly. They were like, oh, my God, We're I never want to do that. <laughs> so in my head, I was like, well, I need, I need to figure out what to do in order to show that I can do the hero kind of keyframe stuff. Right. So what I did in the beginning was I spent a lot of time after work hours doing my own creature animation with the Banshee, mm. which is the flying you yeah. know, bird characters that yeah. they ride on. And I just started building my own tests. I took a camera, put it on, had guys jumping off cliffs and flying through the air and diving. And, right. and I submitted them to dailies. And I said to my anim director, Andy Jones, lovely guy, mm -hmm. very talented, I said to him, hey, just been fiddling around, you know, on some free time when I'm play blasting, just playing around. And I really love this character. I'd really love to work on this stuff. And right. I'd love to get your feedback on, on what I could do better. And I just kind of put it on the map that this is what I want to do. And then before I knew it, I started getting those assignments. Right. Um, and so I think it's really important to be – I find usually when you're, when you're verbal about what you want to do, chances are you're probably going to do it well. Right. Because your passion lies there. Yeah. Of course, there's some sort of give and take in that process, which is I've had some animators where I've said, listen, I don't think you're quite ready for that. But, hey, I've got this one that I think is going to get you right. closer to it's that. It's a stepping stone. Absolutely. Yeah. But, but if you don't know – 
then you always risk, like I had one animator come to me and say, why do you keep giving me all the running shots? Why are you doing that? It's driving me crazy that every one of my shots is a run shot. And what I realized was that I typecast her because that running shot that she did was so good. I'm like, let's give her the running shots. (laughs) But of course, when she came to me and said, that's not just what I want to do. I want something else. And I started giving her, this is Alvin and the Chipmunks, I started giving her acting shots. Mm. She was knocking them out of the park. Right. And then all she started getting was acting shots. shots. I mean, but if you don't know, you can't you can't adjust to, right. to meet those demands. Yeah. And it's I think one of the big things that is sometimes hard to get through to even to a student or a young artist is the relationships, you know, within the the construct of production. And, yep. and these, you know, in this case, massive films, big entertainment IP. There's a lot at stake. There's a lot of money involved and there's a lot of personalities involved. Building those relationships and being able to communicate clearly to your superiors or vice versa is is ridiculously important and, and a way of of building your own professional reputation. For sure. So you work on Avatar and The Hobbit. I mean, the directors of those films are I don't think it's hyperbole to say they're titans of our industry, James Cameron, yeah. Peter, Peter Jackson. Jackson. Um, maybe talk a little bit about you know your interaction with, with people who have such a direct vision and they've got this amazing sandbox to work in. Mm-hmm. They've got to wrestle thousands of people working on these films. What did you see in terms of the relationships that they were building? So uh, that's a good question. Um, I think probably one of the most interesting things for me in, in, in this craft is the fundamental differences in personality between every director. Right. Um, and one of the things that I uh, believe in, I think to be successful as a leader, at least let's say in what I do, mm-hmm. is uh, you have to be a chameleon. Right. I feel like if you always approach different scenarios with the same sort of rigid philosophical point of view on leadership, right. you're eventually going to bump. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that when you are working for people, and people are working for you. Right. A really strong leader is someone who can kind of chameleon themselves in order to adapt to exposing the strengths of those people. Right. So in the case of James Cameron, who I never worked directly with, that was mm-hmm. my first film at Weta, so I was just a senior animator on sure. Avatar. But obviously I'm watching and, and experiencing. Yeah. Uh, and in the case of Peter Jackson, who I did work closely with for a period of time uh, on The Third Hobbit as, as the anim suit, mm-hmm. um, they're completely different. Right. I mean, fundamentally different. <laughs> uh, so, so James Cameron had already worked out Avatar before it ever came to Weta. Right. So Lightstorm, his facility, obviously he pre it for years. Yep. So it took Weta a little while to figure out that the sort of, you know, collaborative, creative, back and forth and banter about what to do with the performances was not going to work with with Jim. Right. Jim knew exactly what he wanted mm-hmm. and you did not mess with it. It was about executing that it, vision. It was just execute the vision. Yeah. If you execute the vision, you're going to have the film. And I think Weta, one thing that Weta is amazing at is being able to offer alternatives to a client. So if a client comes to them and goes, we're not really sure, and this is what we have right now in our edit, and, and could you play with this idea? Feel free to, to, to work with the edit and change things and you know whatever you want. Right. Weta's really good at going, here's a version one and here's a version two, maybe even a version three, yeah. and having a collaborative relationship with the client. Yeah. 
In the case of Jim, um, obviously there are collaborations that are happening there, but his his previous was very much what he wanted right. out and of that film. Essentially, the concept artist for that film. As yeah, well. I mean, he's a genius. He's <laughs> absolutely brilliant. Um, in the case of uh, Peter, uh, my experience with Peter is that he's very much a director that sort of responds to what he's seeing. Mm. So he's much more um, intuitive-minded that way, which is he, he he likes to look at something and, and, and then respond to it. And then you'll deliver another version, and he'll look at that and respond to that. Yeah. So you're all, it's much more organic in that, in that respect. Um, and you, as a good technician towards achieving someone's vision— Right. You need to adapt to those personalities and that way of working. Mm-hmm. Every client is different. Steven Spielberg's different. Uh, Joss Whedon was different. I mean, yeah. and it, that is an interesting experience, uh, you know, for us because they'll always be at the top of their their hierarchy yeah. within their film, but we're always working under these different personalities, right. and they all require different strategies for how to get the work done in in the best way possible. Right. But for me, like. The relationships that we establish with people that we are working with within mm-hmm. the industry, to me, philosophically, are more important than anything else. Right. They're the most important thing because from my experience, the quality of the work ultimately extends and reflects the relationships. Right. Because if the relationship is healthy and it's productive, Mm -hmm. and it's encouraging and inspiring. I talk a lot, like when I do lectures and stuff, I talk a lot about empathy and protection, protecting the people that you're working with. Mm. I think that if you can get as close as possible to a collaborative... Obviously, as an anim super, an anim director, you're a technician in the sense that you are a bridge to fulfill someone else's vision, almost a conduit to a team. But they're still doing the work, right? <laughs> it's still coming from them. Sure. The, the artistic component is from their sensibilities to achieving a brief. Right. So if you don't know how to allow them to have that voice, then all you're doing is managing directives. Right. And in managing those directives, you potentially squash that creativity. Right. Right. So, you know, I talk a lot... Um, I'm doing this right now because I'm doing a lot of uh, leadership stuff right now, but I, I talk a lot about, uh, the, the, like I did my degree in philosophy, so I talk <laughs> about the Socratic method. Right. Okay, so Socrates, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so Socrates always argued with people the exact same way, which is he never made a statement. He only ever asked questions. Right. So in asking questions, you would then, let's say you had an argument, you know, yeah. and you had a point about something, and he would ask you a very innocent question, what sounded like an innocent question. And then you would answer, and then based on that answer, he would ask you another question, and then you'd answer again. Slowly you would start, uh, <laughs> and you would realize that your argument held no water, that right. there was a problem. Leading the witness, I believe it's called. Yeah, kind of, exactly. <laughs> so for me... Um, I feel like it's very important to always try and ask what the artist's intentions were towards the work. Because if you don't understand where they're coming from, and they may not get everything right. Mm -hmm. They may make choices that are not in line with the brief or the creative vision. But there are some things that they're going to do really well. And if you don't ask those questions, you don't know what to protect. And you risk basically stampeding over everything. And ultimately, you end up getting a very micromanaged animation that kind of feels diluted and isn't particularly inspired. It's a checklist moment. Exactly. And that happens, right? You'll get get, uh, directors uh, who sometimes will just, the notes never end. 
right. you'll hit iteration 60 of the animation. And, you know, we always joke, right, which is, you know, once you hit 60, you could probably go back and look at version 1, 2, or 3, and it was pretty much where <laughs> pretty you Pretty much in the ballpark. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, along that journey, you need to make sure that the animator is still willing to walk through it with you. Right, because right. once that disconnect happens and they you lose them, mm-hmm. that's it. The work is going to fail. Right, uh, right. So the relationships, just coming back to the original point, yeah. are critical to preserving. And, and really good leaders will have uh, strategies and techniques for how to try to keep people going through that process. Yeah, and moving in the right direction. Exactly. I mean, that, that really, to me, is the sign of a successful story. And, and I think there's a big difference between a, a well-told story and a good film. Absolutely. You know, because a good film could be judged on box office. It For could sure. be cultural, whatever. It, it doesn't really matter. It's, it's any great film that's well told that I've seen or that I invest my time in. I, and if you ever open the hood on that, you realize the relationships and the people that were working on that. Everyone had that forward momentum. Everyone yep. was supported in the right way. Yep. Everyone had clarity. Yep. Everything that came out was authentic. The, yep. the process of making it becomes authentic. You know, I, I like to think uh, we talk a lot about metaphors for uh, the relationship between, let's say, an animation supervisor and the team. Yeah. Right. So um, uh, a lot of people like to use military mm-hmm. metaphors for, you know, visual effects production. Sure. You know, we were in the trenches together <laughs> yeah. and there's a camaraderie that forms mm-hmm. where you're doing enormous amounts of hourly work, you know, you're working overtime constantly, right. you're all moving towards the same goal, you've got maybe a difficult client and there's stress coming in from different directions sure. and there's a bonding that happens and so we use military metaphors. I like to use a different metaphor, which is I like to think of it as like a superhero and sidekick relationship. So if you think of Batman and Robin, right? Yep. So, uh, except I'm Robin. Um, so I like to think of myself as the sidekick. Right. So so what Robin does with Batman, right, is he goes, watch out, Batman. Something's going to fall on you right. or be careful behind you, you know, uh, and occasionally gets in there and fights a little bit. Sure. Um, but ultimately, the animator for me is the superhero. They're doing the heavy lifting. Right. My job is just to try and steer them out of trouble. If they're mm-hmm. going a little too far that way, we just nudge them. Right, right. Um, so, yeah, that, 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 that's my metaphor for sort of the relationship that I feel um, I have with the team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're the rock stars. Sure. And then, you know, we've talked a little in full transparency. We've, we've discussed leadership in the past. And I yeah. think... I think leadership doesn't always necessarily just need to be top heavy. You know, it's it's oh, yeah. it's leading yourself. It's trusting the process, yep. trusting those people in front of you and yep. behind you. Um, maybe talk a little bit about your experience now. You know, kind of tracking your career. You you come back to Vancouver from New Zealand, and now you're at Double Negative, and you're the head of animation. What kind of goals do you have as the head of animation at the studio to 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 communicate leadership ideas? Like, what is your what is your vision for what that could be? Uh, so I have, I have probably two things that are sort of constantly on my mind. Yeah. Uh, one is I want to work with DNEG to make them the best creature animation facility in the world. Right. So, you know, there, we have some, some pretty heavy competition out there. Of course. Right. ILM and Weta, Framestore doing beautiful work. Yeah. Um, I want DNEG to be, uh, top of the line when it comes to really, really great creature animation. Mm-hmm. So part of my job um, is to, you know, try and execute that. Right. Um, the other thing that I want is I want to fulfill the career paths of the animators on my team. Sure. That's really important to me. It's something mm-hmm. I think about all the time. Um, 
So one thing that um, I do a lot is I have a lot of one-on-one interaction with my team members. Mm. I want to know what they want. I want to know what shows they want to be on, what types of work they want to do, where they see themselves. I want to know what they do uh, in their private life creatively. Are they doing short films, stop motion? Do they draw a lot? Because, you know, 2019 for me was very much a year of training and development for my team at DNEG. We we did an enormous amount of work to try and upskill the team, inspire them, motivate them. And, And I should be clear. Uh, this is a very senior animation team. Right. This isn't, you know, I've got a large demographic of juniors and yeah. I need to get their their basic skills up. These are people that have been working in the craft for a long time. They're very talented. And so uh, it's still it's still very much part of my, my uh, agenda, mm-hmm. which is, um, you know, I'll give you an example. Uh, if I have a, a, I have a, I had a one-on-one catch-up uh, late last year with one of our very senior animators who just finished shooting a, a, a short film of his own, mm. uh, spent a weekend, you know, filming his car. It was a, a love letter to his vehicle, <laughs> really nice car, Corvette. Um, and uh, when I heard that, I was like, "Well, w- we need you to contribute back to the team and right. show us what you've done." So he brought in all the camera equipment. He brought in his edit. He brought in all sorts of stuff, and he did a whole presentation on it. Um, I've got uh, I've got life drawing uh, that's happening every month. I've right. got film theory sessions where. Any animator, I don't care who you are, if you've got a movie that you're passionate about or multiple films that you want to compare. In fact, right now, uh, a young lady named Juliana, who's one of the animators on my team, is upset with me because I could not go to her film theory presentation (laughs) on Latin cinema, which is happening this very minute. Oh, my goodness. So she's doing that in the cinema in front of, you know, 50 people. Right. Um, And uh, I'm always looking for opportunities where we can encourage animators on the team to expose themselves in a way that inspires other members of the team. Right. And now that's starting to branch out of just animation. We're starting to get other departments that are hearing about it and they want to attend these things and be involved. Yeah. So it's sort of, um, I guess for me, it's about creating a culture of kind of growth and, mm. and motivation and enthusiasm really around the craft. Yeah. yeah. I mean, everyone... As an artist, you want you want to move into something. Like you always want to have some runway in front of you. You know that the, having that ceiling going. Well, I guess exactly. I've, I guess I'm here. Yeah. That is only going to end up pushing you backwards. And, right. and I think it's funny because we actually share titles: head of animation here, head of animation. Yeah. Obviously, a very different job. But I think one of the things that I find is just setting expectations yeah. and clearly defining the priorities. Yeah. Do you do you agree with that? Is that well, something the, the, that the, we're, we're both called that? But that's because there. One of our mandates is that there has to be an educational component. Right. So you are a school, so yeah. it's, it's pretty obvious that there's an educational component, but yeah. there's an educational component for me as well, right. which is if your students don't grow, then they're not getting anything out of your program. Right. If the animators don't grow, then they're going to leave. So you want them to not only work on cool stuff, yeah. but you also want them to grow and develop. So I'm always trying to look for my next lead animator. Um, uh, my next animation supervisor. Right. Who, who's going to step into that? Yeah. Um, and I think that if you can create a healthy atmosphere around those types of ideas, you'll have, like in our case at DNEG, we have a core team of about 18 people. Mm-hmm. They're permanent staff. Right. And most of them, probably about 90% of them, have been there since the beginning of the company here in Vancouver. Right. So that tells you something. When our turnover rate isn't particularly high, sure. that tells you we're doing the right thing. Yeah. Um, and Robin Luckham, who is my very close friend and 
uh, I used to work with at Weta. Mm. I only came to Vancouver from New Zealand to take this job because of my relationship with him. Right. I knew that we shared a very similar cultural outlook. And just to say, so Robin is the global head of animation yeah. at DNEG, and he used to be the head of animation in Vancouver. In Vancouver. So when I came to DNEG and he was my head of animation in Vancouver, I only took the job because that was so important to me to know I was going into a company that had a vision similar to mine right. of the healthy culture of an animation team. Mm -hmm. And Robin and I came from Weta where there was a very healthy uh, cultural vibe for the animation right. team. So, um, and now that he's moved on to another role and I've taken over that position, I'm mm -hmm. just, I'm just continuing uh, that, and that, that's really important. That relationship, and that's, yeah. I mean, that's how any relationship works. It's exactly. built on like-mindedness. That's right. It sounds like what you're looking for here is, is, is in your artists and the people that work with you and for you, to build observational skills, to build a, a storytelling language that isn't necessarily just repeating creature animation or, or figuring out how to go from FK to IK or, you know, getting the pace on a gate correct. It, yeah. it, would, it would imagine that practice becomes a big part of it. And this is something that I'm starting to work on with students here is really finding a way to practice purposefully rather yeah. than just saying, hey, just keep drawing and you'll get better. Yes. That doesn't really give you any sort of clear direction about what you should be practicing. Yeah. So are there a couple of things that you ask artists to work on? Or, you know, it's like, you know, step away from Maya, step away from the computer, take photographs, sculpt, play music, make films about your car. I mean, are these are all... Well, they wouldn't on the surface seem like valuable items, but it seems like that's something you're obviously trying to encourage. So uh, give you a perfect example. So today, um, uh, again, through one of these one-on-one -on -one conversations with one of my animators, uh, she, uh, even though we mostly do creature animation, mm -hmm. right? So realistic creature stuff. Um, there's always this desire to know what the feature world of animation is like from, right. a, from a VFX perspective. Mm -hmm. Probably my entire career, I maybe know five individuals who have incredible demo reels that show equally feature and creature work. Right. Um, usually when you're in creature, you stay in creature. It's hard to break into the, and vice versa. Right. Yeah. Um, she came to me and said, uh, you know, I really want to develop my acting skills. I don't feel like I'm a strong actor. Mm. And we don't do much in the way of, you know, humanoid acting, sure. you know, emotive acting. Um, but she said, uh, I don't understand why certain acting choices are stronger than others. And I want to mm. go through some sort of experience where I can learn a little bit more about that. Sure. And so, of course, with the philosophy that I've just finished talking about, I went, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so this morning uh, we had, let's see, about 15 uh, volunteers uh, to start a new session. So we do lunchtime, like I said, film theory and life drawing and that yeah. sort of thing. Uh, we're now doing acting for reference. So you know 11 Second Club. Yep. All your students know 11 of Second course. Club. Yeah. It's a similar sort of thing without the anim animation component. Sure. Obviously, we're not going to mandate that animators <laughs> be going home and now doing feature animation. Yeah. But what we are doing is we're um, releasing audio uh, to the individuals that signed up for this. They have a one-month period of time mm -hmm. to shoot themselves acting to that audio at home. So we don't put them under the pressure of having to do it with other people right. or anything like that. They yeah. can do it in the privacy of their own home, <laughs> dress up however they want, do whatever they want. Um, and um, we're going to then 
analyze all of those videos in a group dailies format mm -hmm. where people will get to present a little bit about why they made the choices they made, how they interpreted the dialogue. Right, right. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about, you know, uh, a lot of the things that go into you know, not so strong acting versus really sure, strong acting sure. choices. Um, so that's that's one thing. Another thing that uh, I like to talk about a lot is so we talked about the Socratic method. Yep. That's a big part of the day-to-day -day workflow of an animator, even when they're in their own head, right. which is why are you making the choices you're making? Is the pose you are building critical to telling the story of mm -hmm. what you're trying to do? Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I like to do is uh, have animators draw over a pose. So you've got a reference. You're doing a tiger. Yep. Okay. Um, we analyze the reference. We all know that. We look at the reference. We analyze it. Okay, I get it. Um, but do you? <laughs> so <laughs> what you do is you draw over the poses. So you're basically drawing line of action. Right. But then you're giving yourself notes. So you're writing over that pose that mm. you've drawn on top of why that leg is contacting the ground at that time. Right. Why are the hips in this position? Th that Socratic method is constantly happening where you're always asking yourself, does this make sense right. to me? You're playing devil's advocate with your own frame-by-frame frame animation. Exactly, exactly. So, um, and th there's, there's, there's so many techniques, like I talked about the mental weightlifting. Yeah. Uh, one of them is slow motion acting. Um, mm. So, uh, you know, a classic example is, you know, the baseball pitch, right? Right. Well, if it's something that you can do, you're not animating uh, an octopus, obviously. Right. Uh, but if it's something you physically can do, um, act it in slow motion. Because by, by breaking it down in slow motion, you give your brain time to understand what the mechanics are that are happening through your right. body. Right. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, there, 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 there's so many of these things where, but ultimately what it comes down to is it comes down to asking the question of why you're making the choice right, you're making. Right, right. Uh, we Absolutely. recently had a, a, uh, a wonderful, so like I said, we do workshops constantly. Sure, mm -hmm. we have the tools and the technical side of workshops, yeah. but we also have animation workshops. Uh, so I'll give you a, a couple of examples. Um, one of our lead animators on uh, Togo, her name is Arna, uh, she was tasked by myself to be the lead animator on the actual build and rig of the dog and mm -hmm. the dog face. So we built all the blend shapes and all of the fact stuff in the face from scratch for the dog. Right. And Arna was responsible for basically becoming the scientist <laughs> on how the muscles in a dog's face work yeah. and the different expressions. Um, one of the things that uh, I asked her to do was I wanted a style guide or a Bible, an animation Bible on what expressions have which muscles firing and wow. for what reason? So Arna taking, we literally had a dog fax Bible because that's been done. <laughs> yeah. um, and Arna basically uh, through reference video and then drawing, like I said, on top of the reference, wrote documentation in our internal wiki on why the muscles were firing to achieve which expressions. That level of analysis will not only make her amazing at her job, right. but when we're looking at animation, she and I together in dailies, and I'm calling out a certain shape as being a problem, she goes, well, actually, it's the lateral, blah, 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 you know, <laughs> and she can explain why that muscle is firing the way it is. Right. Uh, in the case of uh, one of my animation supervisors, Ricardo, he did an entire presentation on why he makes the posing choices he does when he's blocking animation, what the rationale and the psychology is for him on why that is the pose that he's going to make for right. that part of the performance. And... Um, 
we just we, we keep doing these sorts of things all the time. And ultimately, I don't care how senior you are, going through those exercises really just ends up upskilling the whole team. And, and just even the, the meta version of that, if everyone's doing it, exactly. there's a supportive kind yeah. of culture that, that, that kind of builds around Exactly. That. It's inspiring. Yeah, yeah. I used to dictate that my animation students shoot 30 minutes minimum of reference for even a 10-second shot. And they used to question me on it. And, and I would wait until they did it. Because I would say, well, the first 10 minutes is useless because you're nervous. You don't want to do this. You're questioning why you're doing it. Then you kind of have five minutes where you start to calm down a bit. Then you have five minutes of brilliant performance because you suddenly stop thinking about it. Right. At the end of the five minutes, you could become aware that, hey, that might have been good. And then you spend the last 10 minutes trying yeah. to re replicate that. Yeah. So out of that 30 minutes, you're finding that nugget in the yes. middle where you, you turn that awareness off and become a performer. Absolutely. The, yeah. I wanted to ask you a little bit about... You know, this idea of, of performance and human acting and obviously a large part of your career has been spent now on creature animation. And I wanted you to maybe define for in your like in your mind, what is what does creature animation mean and how does it build, you know, the, the role that it plays in a story? And, and we can bring this back to Togo because it's probably fresh in your head. And and uh, I spent some time watching Togo. It's a beautiful film. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously the level of artistry in, in the these sled dogs is yeah. is I'm sure you've. You might have hit peak dog. It's amazing stuff. Uh, so congratulations Thank to you, you and your team for that. Thank but um, what you know, what what role was that? I mean, obviously, if you didn't get it right, it pulls you out of the story. Yes. There, there's that obviousness yeah. of it. But in terms of like performance and creating an audience, you talked you talked talk about empathy, us empathizing with these creatures. Um, what is your approach to that so that it's not just a technical exercise? So the trickiest thing I think with to when we first were looking at that project, uh, we had a much larger volume of CG work for the dogs that we were expected to do. Right. But then they went and shot the movie, and lo and behold, these incredible husky dogs did enormous amounts of work that we <laughs> thought they wouldn't be able to handle. Right. Um, one of the big ones, so there's a sequence in the film, um, which is uh, the dog team running on this massive, endless sheet of ice that is cracking and breaking and all that stuff. And right. in the beginning, we were led to believe, well, the Huskies won't run on ice. They just won't do that. Right. So we're looking and we're like, okay, well, these are all all CG dog shots. Um, and lo and behold, the Huskies loved running on ice and they were able to do it no problem. Um, so we had uh, a number of shots within a very large edit right. where it was real dogs in most of those shots. But there were a number of shots where just due to the sheer insanity of the shot, right. which is the ice starts to tip, yeah. right? Well, you mm -hmm. can't recreate that. And sure. also there are undue stress laws where you are not allowed yeah. to put a dog through that. Um, we needed to uh, obviously make sure that our dog asset held up well enough that you could intercut from live action dogs to CG dogs and nobody would know the difference. Mm. So the initial development of the dog asset, the schedule afforded us time to get that right, which is not always the case on most shows. Right. Um, so we had a, a long time, but we very meticulously managed the dialogue between build or modeling, right. our rigging department in animation. Hmm. And so that relationship was so connected and managed because obviously you don't have an infinite amount of time sure. and you need to know that what you're requesting is you know falling into that critical priority and then going down from there to sure. the low-hanging fruit that maybe you don't need to focus on right now. Yeah. Um, 
And then the actual analysis of the physics wasn't something we could find uh, as far as this tipping ice stuff. Yeah. We couldn't find that in reference. If you go onto YouTube and you type in dog slipping on ice, there are hundreds of clips, <laughs> but the ice is flat. Right. And they're not always bulleting as fast as they can go on it. And some of the clips are downright hilarious, yeah. and you would not choose to put those in your film. It'd be like a cartoony dinosaur walk again. Exactly. There you go. <laughs> Thanks for reminding me about that. Um, and so uh, we had to extrapolate the physics of slipping on right. the ice and then extrapolate that into what does that mean for tipping ice. Mm. Plus, you've got forward momentum that is now gradually being lost because it's tipping, so you're starting to slide laterally. Um, these were really tricky things and yeah. probably some of the most complex shots that we've done uh, at DNEC because mm -hmm. you've got 11 dogs all strapped together by ropes right. that are all slipping and falling while running in individual ways because you don't want to see pattern. They've all got their own personalities and they're doing different things. Sure. Um, so selling the believability of that within the shot itself is one thing, mm -hmm. but then connecting it to the surrounding live action shots and making sure that works is a whole other thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so... That was a real challenge for us. It took quite a long time. Sure. Uh, one of our animators, uh, Leonardo, um, he was the lead on that whole sequence. And it was really up to him to try and figure out those mechanics. We worked together a lot. And a lot of the reference went bye-bye. We were like, no, it doesn't work. Let's try right. this one. Yeah. Um, and really large bid days for those shots to try sure. and get the animation done. Yeah. Um, and then as for the close-up hero stuff, which again was... was um, uh, you know, we had a handful of shots that were all CG growls. Um, there's one really cute shot where a live action puppy licks the face of a live action dog on set. But that dog is supposed to be growling, which you can't make a dog growl right. on set. That's right. not allowed. <laughs> and so what they did was they stuck uh, a classic prosthetic up in the upper lip, which <laughs> curls the upper lip. And basically, they just look like, you know, the ears are still like this, and they're supposed to look angry, but they don't. They look silly. Yeah. So all of that had to get replaced. Um, so, you know, we literally chop off the head and put in a CG dog wow. uh, with all of the blend shape work that we developed, that fax system, the muscle-based system. Yeah. Um, and uh, we studied an enormous amount of video reference, uh, like I said before, with, with why the dogs emote this way, what muscle groups are firing based on which expressions. Yeah. Um, and I think those shots came up pretty, pretty well. And the ultimate compliment is nobody notices. Yeah, exactly. In, in the right way. That's right. Well, certainly, I mean, Disney Plus doesn't need a plug from me. But <laughs> uh, definitely, if, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen it, uh, you should check it out. Uh, if, mm. if nothing else, just to watch the artistry because... Uh, you know, it's spectacular to know that that is the kind of stuff that was yeah. being done behind the scenes to make that yeah. happen. Yeah, let me just say, though, for all of you wannabe filmmakers out there, don't go on set when it's negative 30 degrees. <laughs> okay, so so Togo was shot in northern Alberta. Right. And uh, our visual effects supervisor spent three months uh, doing that shoot. And I don't know how he did it because I was there for one week. And then I was like, I'm good. <laughs> even I'll, being I'll from wait Montreal. for the shots back. <laughs> yeah, even being from, well, Montreal just, just wore me down. I mean, you'd think I'd have more tolerance, but in fact, it's the opposite. Um, but I was like in Vancouver just saying, yep, yeah, I'll wait for the shots to come in. I trust you guys. Yeah. <laughs> good. I could not handle it. You don't need hypo hypothermia. No, and, exactly. You know, freezing your fingers yeah. off. You need yeah. those. Um, Beautiful footage, but brutal, brutal shoot. Brutal conditions. Yeah. yeah. Well, and 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 that's the story of the film. That's the, the brutal story conditions, of the film. yeah, exactly. and the, the obstacles that they had overcome. That's right. Um, 
we'll, we'll kind of wrap it up here. I wanted to ask you a couple of We're already questions. out of time. We're getting there. I yeah. feel like I could do another could, hour. Oh, we could easily. We could do a whole thing just on Togo. We can do it on Alvin the Chipmunks. <laughs> I mean, we could do it on Godzilla. I mean, there's a ton. We'll have to bring you back for part two. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> I wanted to talk uh, maybe a little bit more personally to you about where you think... Looking forward now. We spend a lot of time looking back, and it's easy to kind of read. Are you going to ask me where animation's going in the future? Not animation in general. Okay. I kind of want to ask you where I'm you... I'm so bad at answering these questions. <laughs> That's a, it's an impossible question yeah, to answer. Yeah, it is. But knowing the, the arc of your career and knowing kind of the things you've learned and the, the leadership skills that you're building and, and instilling in others, like the next five years, like what, what do you oh. and your team expect to accomplish like what expectations do you have you you, you mentioned before double negative best creature animation yeah. studio in the so world. Uh, one thing that we need to get better at is facial animation mm. um, I think that there's a lot of incredibly um, uh, advanced technology right. that other facilities are starting to look at sure. and use obviously uh, facial you know, performance yeah I mean you yeah. know uh, DD did an incredible job with Thanos so did Weta uh, yeah. involved in Thanos um, those Companies, especially Weta, have a, a long history of, uh, of facial analysis and facial tech. Right. Um, I think that, at least for us and where I would like to be developing myself more, right. uh, is along the facial lines. I gotcha. think facial animation is absolutely critical to believability. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing was for Togo, for example, was we got it right but we only had to focus on one, really one type of expression, which was growling. Right. So once we figured out growling, we were like, oh, that looks pretty cool. We'll be okay. Yeah. Um, and there was some panting and, and stuff like that. But, you know, when you're thinking about a human being and the sheer range of, of facial, and it's one thing just to nail an expression and mm -hmm. get that to be believable. It's a whole other thing to do dialogue. Right. That, 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 is, that is way more complex. There's so much happening in the mm -hmm. face. There's so much complexity with the lips and the shapes of the lips um, and the tongue. Uh, so I would like my team and myself especially to advance that technology at DNEG to get right. better at doing that sort of work. I think that's really important. Cool. We have, if I had a wish, so one of the things that I just recently did was um, we did a, a team post-mortem for the end of 2019. Mm -hmm. So instead of post-morteming a show, we did an animation team post-mortem. And we did this really fun kind of team building exercise where everybody got asked a question that they had to write down the answer on a post-it note. And the post-its were different colors depending on whether you were an animator, a lead animator, or a supervising animator. Yeah. And then we would take the answers uh, on each post-it and we would put it on the wall underneath that question. Mm -hmm. And then what we did was we gathered up all of the answers and we put them into a statistical form of pie chart and graph right. so that I could gauge what is my team interested in doing for 2020. So basically they're setting out my agenda as an HOD right. for how to advance the agenda of the team. And one of the number one, well, there were two main things that came up in this. Number one, more camera workshops. So a, a stronger understanding by animators of how cameras work. So right. this was a big thing that I remember on, on Hobbit. Mm. Uh, Peter Jackson was not happy at one point with the camera work that was being done by the animation team. So he brought in an expert who was an expert DOP and also had a visual effects background mm -hmm. to bring down all of his camera equipment. We spent a Saturday playing with dollies and cranes and all of this stuff, actually hand-holding the, the, you know, the physicality of this camera stuff. Right. And then the Sunday was all about applying that knowledge into camera rigs in Maya. Um, and 
that was an incredible experience because most of the time an animator playing with a camera in Maya, it's a single node, right? right? It's just one node. Yeah. What cameras in reality <laughs> are many nodes. All the nodes. <laughs> certain things are translating while other things are rotating and they're very complicated. Yeah. And I feel like every animation team in the world can always benefit from learning more about on-set photography and on-set right. camera capture sure. and how to translate that into CG. Uh, that's something that I want to develop, and that's something that they have requested from that post-mortem. Right. And then the other thing is, is as you know, you know, Dineg, for example, has a very large feature division, mm -hmm. which is established in London, right. and a lot of them want to work on feature stuff. Sure. You know, that's the thing when you're a, when you're a creature animator. You know, it reminds me of like Woody Allen. You know, he would always say, "When I'm in Paris, I wish I was in New York, and when <laughs> I'm in New York, I wish I was I in dream Paris." Of Paris. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So, you know, every visual effects animator wants that opportunity. Sure. I mean, that was the reason. I stayed at Weta to do Alvin and the Chipmunks because I had never done comedy, let alone, you know, sort of acted humanoid, you know, performance. Right, right. Um, so you're always looking for those things that kind of put you into an uncomfortable position to learn. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I would really like to see uh, all of the animation teams at DNEC have that opportunity to, to, to develop to feature themselves. Work. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, ultimately it comes down to, uh, if you're listening to this, you're not going to see this, but like the frame, like that's our canvas. Yes. Whether you're an animator or a modeler or a texture artist or you're, you're a render wrangler, like at, ultimately it comes through that framework. For and sure. you have to understand what that means. I mean, any artist would, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I guess my last question, and maybe you've already answered this, but just super personally, what, what do you want to learn? What do I want to learn? Yeah. Uh, well, I have, um, what do I want to learn? Well, like I said, I mean, I want to learn more facial. Yeah. Um, you know, there's the upcoming Spark yep. uh, FX uh, thing. This, yeah. th that will probably have happened before this goes out. Um, but uh, I'm going to be moderating uh, Phil Kramer's yes. uh, talk uh, about Thanos and the facial tech that they developed for that work. Mm -hmm. I'm really excited about that because I need to learn more about that aspect of the, of the craft. Of the, yeah. So for me, that's really important. The other thing that I want to learn is I have sort of uh, one... Uh, uh, secret ambition, uh, mm -hmm. which is obviously as a, as someone who might be in an anim director position, uh, I will work within the 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 vendor, you know, under the vendor roof. Right. Um, I would also like to have an opportunity to go client side. Uh, yeah. So to actually work on the studio side and work hand in hand with the director on a large animation project, sure. uh, that's a big ambition of mine. I want to know how that works, yeah. looking at it back the other way. Speaking of relationships. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And establish those relationships. That's something that I'd be really interested in doing. Um, but, you know, I, I don't hold on too tight. I mm -hmm. used to. Um, you know, right. as a, a, there was a period of time in my career where I was I was really ambitious, yeah. and 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 I, I I wanted I wanted you know the praises of the industry. Uh, that has changed quite a lot for me uh, over the last few years. I would say, right. where for me I see a lot of value in what I'm doing right now. Right. Um, I see a lot of value in putting other people forward. Uh, I'm very interested in that. And so while I would love to go studio side and have that experience, yeah. that may never happen. And, and I'm good with that now. Right. Uh, you know, that, that's totally fine. I'm getting a great deal of fulfillment out of what right. I'm doing. The ultimate mature statement of an experienced <laughs> head of animation. It took right? a while to get there, but yeah, I'm, 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 I'm there now. <laughs> yeah, we all have to walk that path. Yeah. Well, Aaron, you've been officially the first 
animation guest on this show. So yes. thank you for being here. Yes. Congratulations thank on you. everything. Thanks from very much. us at Vancouver Film School. For me personally, of course, it's been I've learned a lot just talking to you today, and I learn something every time we speak. And there's uh, there's some other surprises coming up from from us and our relationship yes. that oh, people yes. will uh, will be aware of soon yeah. enough. And I think we should have you back again for a part two because there's I would a thousand other questions. Wonderful. But uh, yeah, look, look, look for Aaron's name in the credits of many films. But uh, just know that there's a lot of hard work, a lot of relationships being built, and and leadership is a big thing yep. for for any aspiring animator or artist for that matter. Yep. So uh, thank you again. This has been fantastic. Thank and you, uh, for all of those you that are listening out there, I hope you've appreciated this, and I hope you got something out of it too. And we'll be back again here on the Storyteller Studio. Awesome. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you so much, guys. I appreciate it.